For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out about the part that local students played in this week's national protest against gun violence. Chris DeShiel looks at two films featured in next week's Tucson Cine Mexico Film Festival. And I'll talk with film historian Viviana Garcia Besne about rescuing a classic Mexican superhero film from obscurity. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Wednesday marked one month since 17 people, mostly students, were killed in a shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. This week, students all over the country walked out of schools to remember those victims and the victims of other mass shootings. At least one estimate said one million students joined the national school walkout, and that included some in Tucson. Nick O'Gara reports. Student activists have been working to build momentum since the Parkland shooting in the name of protesting gun violence and calling for safer schools. Wednesday's walkout was one of at least three national events planned within about a couple of months of the Florida shooting. The idea Wednesday was to observe 17 minutes at 10 a.m., one each for those who died on February 14th. It was a chance for students to commemorate the Parkland victims, but also, for many, to call on lawmakers to effect meaningful change amid a difficult debate over gun laws. Many school districts, including in Tucson, also found themselves in a debate, calling up the issue of free speech. What to do when or if students actually walk out of class? Tucson Unified Superintendent Gabriel Trujillo addressed the issue the day before the planned walkouts. So really we are trying to minimize the potential for an off-campus Uh, walk out tomorrow in our schools. To do that, some schools in TUSD offered events to keep kids on campus, things like a teach-in or a walk-in, question and answer sessions, or small group discussions. We want to make sure we do everything we can to keep everything on campus, and if kids are choosing to walk off campus, we've mobilized our school safety team. Trujillo and representatives from other districts said that was the key. Really, our concern is safety. It's a kid leaving campus, crossing a street, getting hit by a car, Kids texting while they're walking, walking across streets. Kids making poor decisions when they're outside of school. Those are the types of things that we worry about. Other schools around Tucson, including in the Sunnyside, Marana, and Amphitheater districts, did the same, offering on-campus sanctioned events as alternatives to students walking out. And some said students who left could expect an unexcused absence. On Wednesday, social media was flooded with images from around the nation of students calling for change and honoring the Florida victims. Those images in Tucson showed students participating in school events or walking off campus to stand or march in the streets. For students who walked out of Tucson's City High School, there would be no formal consequences. The school even encouraged students to engage in conscious participation, or not, as the case may be. It's a public school, it's small, with 184 kids, and it's right downtown. Leadership there acknowledged that a walkout wouldn't be terribly disruptive. The school designated a meeting place of Hakame Plaza, about a block away, and that meant they could keep track of the students' safety. When they arrived in the plaza on Wednesday, students and staff held an observance for 17 minutes. In mostly silence, just the sound of birds, cars, and the occasional passerby taking a photo or chiming in. And then without words, they started walking. 
students were back in their class at about 10.20. Students said the walkout was meaningful to them. Here's Gala Lorenz. It needs to end. I, my, my nieces and my siblings and my friends don't need to be afraid of going to school. They shouldn't fear their peers or their teachers or police officers coming at them with guns. And they should be able to get an education rather than being afraid. And Milo Lehrling, also a student, says the walkout should prompt action. Um, it's meaningful to me because I really want to push for uh, better gun legislation so that, as uh, Gala said, children in schools and people just across the country should not have to be afraid for their lives when they go out in public or even in their homes. And their classmate, Donovan Moon, reflected on participating in a large political statement. It really just helps me recognize the power that we have as students and um, as stewards of our world uh, that can participate in politics and things like that. And when people, you know, see us and take pictures down the street, it feels like we're actually making an impact. And that's not something that I've ever felt in my life before. It feels like you're just a small pawn in a bigger chess game. But More national demonstrations are planned, protesting gun violence and calling for safer schools, including the March for Our Lives events in Washington, Tucson, and many other cities on March 24th. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nick O'Gara. The 2018 Oscars are behind us, but ahead lies the spring film festival season. That includes one annual event that lets local audiences sample one of the world's busiest and most creative movie industries. Next, film essayist Chris DeShield reviews two movies, once a drama shot in documentary style, the other a documentary that's long on drama, and both were made by women directors at the top of their game. It's time once again for Tucson Cine Mexico, the longest-running festival of contemporary Mexican film in the U.S., now in its 15th year, taking place from March 21st through the 25th. It almost seems unnecessary for me to emphasize the vitality of Mexican movies now in the wake of Mexican-born directors winning Oscars four out of the last five years. Cine Mexico has been remarkable in its selection of the best new cutting-edge films, as well as tributes to important older films from the country's rich tradition. I was given the opportunity to watch two excellent movies on the schedule, both directed by women. Todo lo demás, or in English, everything else, follows an older woman named Doña Flor, living alone with her cat in a Mexico City apartment. She works at a government office, processing applications for benefits, the nature of which is never spelled out. We see her face to face with various applicants of all ages, sometimes making small talk, mostly just looking over the paperwork handed to her. In a few instances, she has to turn people away for failing to follow instructions. The requirements are written over there on the wall, she says. The reactions are diverse, ranging from passive acceptance to anger and hostility. Doña Flor treats everyone the same, no matter what, although her careworn face and tired eyes tell us that this job, which she seems to have been doing a long time, is no picnic. The director is Natalia Amada, up until now a documentary filmmaker. 
This new picture is a tremendously moving study of quiet desperation. Like a poet who restricts herself to the sonnet form in order to spur greater creativity, Amata uses editing alone for her effects. In other words, there is no camera movement within the shots. The stationary camera evokes the discrete moment-by-moment nature of a lonely life. As Doña Flor, the veteran actress and director Adriana Barassa is mesmerizing. Her character has a backstory, and it involves some secret grief. It's not spelled out, but we are invited to guess it from certain clues. Barassa pulls us into this very quiet character with unflinching attention. Without a word of explanation, we learn that hers is a life of loss, and the world she lives in, the job, the city, the news that filters in through the television in her flat, is also a place of loss, ever-present yet unacknowledged. Toto Lo Damas is an auspicious fiction film debut for a fine talent. It's screening at 7 p.m. on Saturday, March 24th at the Harkins Theaters. Winding up the festival is Tempestad, a lyrical documentary by Tatiana Huezo. Against the backdrop of a long bus journey through rural Mexico, we hear a young woman named Miriam tell how she, among many others, was falsely arrested for human trafficking and turned over to a so-called self-run prison controlled by a drug cartel. The police get to claim they solved a crime, while the cartel gets to extort money from the inmates' families. The violence and abuse she suffered changed her for life, and after she was finally released for lack of evidence, she wrote this account. Although she narrates, we never see her face, but Huezo uses the faces of many other people, young and old, living in poverty and oppression, somehow getting by, in the journey symbolized by Miriam's bus ride home. Along the way, we encounter a small traveling circus where one of the clowns, Adela, narrates the story of her work, friends, and family. This part starts to interweave with Miriam's tale, and eventually we discover that Adela's daughter had been kidnapped a decade before, probably by sex traffickers, and never heard from since. The two narratives combine in a tragic portrait of Mexican corruption and its devastating human cost. The photography is achingly beautiful, and the juxtaposition of this visual beauty with the melancholy reality of the lives of the film's subjects is an experience you won't soon forget. Tempestad screens at 2 p.m. on Sunday, March 25th, also at the Harkins. Tucson's Cine Mexico has become one of the jewels of Tucson's movie season. For more information, go to TucsonCineMexico.org. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShield. For 100 years, the masked wrestler, or luchador, named El Santo has been an iconic figure in global pop culture. 
Between the late 1950s and the time of his death in 1984, he established his legend through constant public appearances and starring roles in more than 50 motion pictures. Viviana Garcia Besne is a film fan, historian, and preservationist who was instrumental in rescuing one of the last remaining prints of Santo's first film from destruction. And it was a film that her grandfather worked on as producer. Next week, Besne will visit Tucson to accompany a screening of El Santo versus El Cerebro del Mal, or Santo versus the Evil Brain. It's part of next week's Tucson Cine Mexico Film Festival. So I spoke to her about her story. This film um, was produced by my grandfather. I found the negative a couple of years ago in a warehouse that was abandoned. It was a place full of decay, and it was a place that many films had already died and fallen apart. And I was able to, to save a few films, and after a year of processing the, the films that I saved from this warehouse, I realized that we had the original camera negatives of uh, these sample films that I don't know if there are any other copies uh, in, any, uh, in any other archive. As far as we know, these are the only elements available. For many years, uh, I tried to restore them in Mexico, and I thought because uh, the centennial of El Santo was coming, I was going, to, I was, I would be able to fundraise for this restoration, but that didn't happen. And as I was about to give up, an amazing, generous filmmaker, Nicolas Winden Ruffin. Yes. He came into the equation and he said, I will help you restore the films and then also the Academy Film Archive from Hollywood. They also joined the, um, the effort and we made beautiful restorations from the original camera negative of the two films that were shot in Cuba during the revolution. It's a true miracle that these films are out now because um, the reels left our place uh, a week before the earthquake. I and mean, if they had been here during the earthquake, probably those reels will be destroyed now. Beyond the science fiction story and the heroic story of good versus evil that's in the film, what do you think is culturally relevant? What can we learn from this movie beyond it being entertainment? Well, you know, I feel like all these films have, um, I will say, hypocritas. I don't know how you say that in English. It's difficult for me to pronounce. And they were hypocrite in a sense that, uh, like, the Santo is fighting against uh, the Mafia del Vicio and obviously against science fiction. But, you know, in truth, the people making these films, uh, they were people who were using drugs and that uh, uh, were having affairs and that were living, you know, like this crazy life. Uh, you know, I, I know all these stories about my my grandfather. Of course, I love him. And I really uh, admire him, but he lived his life uh, the way he wanted to live it. That took him to make these films in Cuba, which, I mean, it's why. Why the debut of El, Can El Santo is in Cuba and not in Mexico? And that was because my, my great-grandfather, who was a, a film mogul in the film, Mexican film industry, he he totally cut him off in Mexico. He told him, you will never work again here in Mexico because I know that you are actually uh, having affairs with all the movie stars and you are married to my daughters. And so as a punishment, he completely cut him off. And then my grandfather, who that year, 1958, he had to go to Cuba with a bunch of friends to shoot the film. And then they couldn't shop anymore in Cuba because Fidel entered La Habana and they had to flood the Habana. You know, like just the stories behind the Santo films are just 
<laughs> so amazing. I think they're even better than the, the film section. You make a great point. It does sound fascinating. I had no idea that uh, the relationship between your great-grandfather and your grandfather was uh, so uh, complicated and wrapped around the film industry. So who were the audience for these films when they were released? That's what makes El Santo so incredibly successful, and that's because Target was everybody. And it was like children, it was like couples, it was like um, families with kids, and even old people. So El Santo kind of appealed to everybody and uh, all different social classes i mean even you know like poor and rich people will get together in the same cinema to watch these films and even that happens today and that's something that i feel that it's wonderful you know when i show a santo film in my very small town in Tepoztlan, uh, i know that i will get you know the lady making the tortillas will bring the the granddaughter to see El Santo to, to introduce her to our hero, but also you know all the hipsters coming for the weekend uh, from Mexico City <laughs> yeah. with uh, lots of money they will also come to see a film of, of El Santo. So that's why he's such an important character in in our cultural cultura. He always wore the mask in public, right? There's this uh, story that I will tell you very quickly. It represents what El Santo was. In the late 70s, people were um, online at a, at a bank to get uh, some money out. And then a couple of uh, mugglers came into the bank with guns and everything. So they were actually assaulting the bank. And then El Santo entered the bank. And he saw that there were two people with guns, and he was like, oh, my God, what's going on here? He had the mask and everything. And then the people started saying, oh, El Santo is here. El Santo, El Santo, yes. And they started, like, cheering up and appalling and everything and shouting, Santo, Santo. And then, you know, the, the, the those two guys that were there to rob the bank, they just fled. Like they said, we're not going to deal with El Santo. And they left the bank without uh, completing their robbery. So this is a true story, and this reflects, you know, like he was a hero at all times, not only in the movies. He was a hero also in, like, in real life. ¿Qué sería de mí sin mi secretaria? Tenemos concertada una cita muy importante con el doctor Lowell acerca de la desintegración de las células. Film historian and preservationist Viviana Garcia Besne spoke with us from a screening room in Mexico City. The UA's Hansen Film Institute presents Tucson Cine Mexico 2018 and the digital restoration of Santo vs. the Evil Brain. That film screens on Thursday, March 22nd at the Fox Tucson Theater. Tickets for all of the festival presentations are free. You can register online now at TucsonCineMexico.org. Next, Andrew Brown takes us to a unique house, one that was built to shelter words. Our guide is its executive director, Tyler Meyer. Wallace Stevens calls poems or poetry a preserve for the imagination. And sometimes I think about the Poetry Center as a sort of physical manifestation of that, a sort of a national park for the imagination. The University of Arizona Poetry Center has been located in this building on campus in Tucson since 2007. It was built to be a permanent home for poetry in this community. 
Its doors and massive library are open to anyone free of charge. You don't even need an ID to go in and read. People, I think, do see the facility and think, oh, that's, you know, it's, it's new. <laughs> this is a new place. It's a longer and prouder history than, than just the facility. Richard Shelton was at the U of A in 1960 when the center was just an idea. He and his late wife, Lois, played a critical role in its formation. President Harville called me in to his office one day and he said, the Walgreen heiress, Ruth Stefan, is giving the university a lot with a small house on it and she wants to establish a poetry center. She's going to supply books to duplicate her poetry library in Greenwich, Connecticut. One of the most influential poets in American history, Robert Frost, traveled to Tucson to dedicate the center in 1962. From the very beginning, the thrust of the Poetry Center was about the collection and about uh, poets and making a space for them here in Tucson in the desert. The collection started in this cottage and with the help of an endowment acquired new books at a pace that at times was difficult to contain. There was a while when we really didn't have enough staff to receive the books and catalog them in and all that. It was a lot of work. One time I took over as, as director, and the previous director had boxes of books stacked in the hall. We were buying about 1,200 books a year. We subscribed to about 250 literary journals. I think it's remarkable that that sort of visionary gift with sort of creative librarianship, consistency, routine effort done over time has grown into one of the largest poetry collections in the country. The collection focuses on poetry from 1960 to the present day and is indeed one of the largest collections of poetry in the country. The center has hosted over 1,000 poets, including 27 U.S. Poet Laureates, 40 Pulitzer Prize winners, 35 National Book Award winners, and four Nobel Laureates. So it's not facetious to say that there's a way in which the 20th century of American poetry tracks through Tucson. It's almost easier to say who hasn't been here to, to get a sense of who has been here. On this night, the center is hosting a reading by Laylee Long Soldier and Timothy Yu. They're both internationally recognized emerging poets who address social issues in their own way. They draw a large crowd. Thank you all for being here. Thank you to everybody at the Poetry Center. You know, I, I imagine perhaps you all are accustomed to this space existing, but you know, coming here and seeing this space and seeing all the folks here is just astonishing for a poet. Um, Yu's book, 100 Chinese Silences, rewrites work from influential poets who have unfairly thematized China. His humor can be disarming, but his work has a serious edge. I am a cicada floating in a coffee cup on the desk of the Poet Laureate. <laughs> Grant proposals are being written. Many bottles of Napa wine are emptied. But even when his nodding head strikes the desk like a bobbing Buddha's, I lurk silently inside my mug, chipped by the teeth of Ezra Pound. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Long Soldier is reading from her 2017 book, Whereas, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. 
I am a citizen of the United States and an enrolled member of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe. Her poetry directly addresses the U.S. government's official apology to Native Americans. I did not desire in childhood to be a part of this, but desired most of all to be a part, a piece, combined with others to make up a whole. Some, but not all, of something. In Lakota, it's hanke, a piece or part of anything. Poetry will always, I think, stay slightly ahead of the masses. So it's evolving, it's constantly evolving. It's a difficult world, and I am righted by poetry often. And I think having spaces where words are valued and language is held up as an especially important thing gives me some sense that, that there's a way forward. That belief Tyler Meyer has in poetry and the Poetry Center was recently rewarded. The Art for Justice Fund gave the center a $500,000 grant to explore mass incarceration, the largest grant in the center's history. Richard Shelton is no stranger to this subject. He's been teaching poetry in prisons for years. I find it hard to believe, actually, that uh, anybody would, would give that money, and I'm delighted. And uh, I hope that, you know, the emphasis can be on working with incarcerated people. With a rich history and recent success, people across the country see the Poetry Center as a model for how poetry can stay a part of our lives and collective consciousness. Robert Casper heads the Library of Congress Poetry and Literature Center. It's hard to get great big support for poetry. And just one look at the center, just the opportunity to walk around the center and to see how it promotes the art is enough to give people like me faith that we can build centers like these throughout the nation, and we should. The Poetry Center is part of a, a larger poetry coalition. Amy Stoles is Director of Literature for the National Endowment for the Arts. And it's nice to see poetry organizations like uh, the Poetry Center here taking a leadership role and working together around the country to um, foster poetry and, incur and build audiences for poetry. So I can only see it growing. Ultimately, uh, we are, we're beings based in language. And I think how we talk about the things that matter greatly to us largely defines our relationship to them. Poetry has a lot to offer in how we might imagine new language for how we think about these things. And if we can imagine new language, I think then we can imagine new kinds of relationships with these challenges. And that's part of the future that we're excited to be a part of. And we're excited for the role that poetry might play in helping uh, shape that. If you're unable to visit the Poetry Center in person, you can explore its rich history online. A system called VOCA offers more than 800 readings dating back to 1963. And you can find them at voca.arizona.edu. You can also watch the story you just heard at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. 
I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.